Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Uh, joining me today for the conversation, glad to welcome back Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Susan Gim of Martin Curry. Susan is an investment client portfolio manager for the emerging markets. So Susan, Amantia, it's great to be with you both. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, and we'll jump right into it. So Amantia, I know on March 9th, you published your monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication. And within the piece, in part, you do discuss the implications of the ongoing war in Ukraine for all investors, though in particular for sustainability-focused investors as well. So, Amantia, what are some key considerations and implications that investors should be mindful of as it pertains to the Russia-Ukraine war? Hi, Dan. Um, great, great to join, uh, and thank you for the question. Many important implications here for all investors, but really, um, I mean, the first thing for us to note is that um, as um, we're, we're speaking now, we're, we're stretching into one month and more of this war. And of course, the human element is the one that is first and foremost top of mind for us. Um, and that said, you know, this, this human element, I think this has been one of the key areas of, of focus even for investors. Now, thinking about what the implications have been, uh, we saw immediate implications um, for, for really all investors, whether they're focused on sustainability outcomes and, and, and instruments or not, um, as Russia or, or exposure to Russian assets were eliminated or were kind of uh, removed from major index providers, nearly overnight, um, this has meant that um, Russian exposure in portfolios for all investors um, should have dropped uh, kind of significantly down to near zero levels. In particular, since the date of this publication, which was March 9th, um, this, this crisis has, has been very quick moving. Now, as we're monitoring the implications in the near term, we're also watching for some medium term as well as longer term implications for investors. And one of the things that we've noted were the, the recent actions that were taken by large international corporations, which uh, opted uh, some voluntarily, some driven by, by uh, say, national sanctions or national guidelines to move away and exit operations in Russia. This was interesting for us to observe for a couple of reasons. I mean, firstly, there was at the beginning some, some confusion and motivation. Was this a values-driven uh, or principles-driven uh, decision, or was this a uh, more of kind of an investment thesis or business thesis-driven decision? And what we noted was that, interestingly, this um, self-sanctioning of companies, where it was voluntary self-sanctioning, um, even though it looked like an ethical decision and it was motivated by ethical um, kind of arguments in, in the cases where it was, um, it actually, in our view, was an indication of what we've talked a lot about in, the, in this conversation, in this call series. Um, it was an indication of the mainstreaming of sustainability expectations. So um, one poll uh, uh, conducted by an organization called Morning Consult found that um, as of a couple of weeks ago, 75% of Americans, for example, supported brands that were uh, cutting ties with, with Russia. And so this kind of degree of alignment in terms of consumer sentiment turns what could be considered a value-driven or an ethical issue into a financially material issue for companies. 
So it almost seems like as we're entering this, you know, era of sustainability or era of ESG, as some have considered it, this corporate divestment from Russia, at least in the near term, in the, in, while we're still at the, at kind of in the heart of this crisis, should be aligned with, with broad shareholder expectations and interests. So that's an interesting takeaway that we're observing. Another interesting one um, that, that with, with potential implications for investors um, is the question of how do we evaluate this kind of exposure to these countries um, and, and contexts where there's perhaps weaker institutional quality or perhaps stronger or higher degrees of political risk. Um, and in our view, what this means is, um, you know, as, as we're evaluating this situation and looking forward, it's possible that investors will start asking some of these questions across the companies that they hold in their portfolio. And, and what this means in practice is perhaps a kind of doubling down or, or even more focus on the G of ESG, the government, government element in the context of country risk. Um, and, and that consideration could likely extend beyond sustainability and ESG focused strategies to, to broad all investment strategies. And now finally, the other thing that I note here is one of the interesting debates that we watched unfold has been that of the uh, role of the defense and aerospace industry in particular um, with regards to sustainability and considerations. And, and this was in particular a question that was raised um, in, on the European continent as many of the European governments have not um, invested as much in, in funding in, in these sectors traditionally and so far. So the shift, we're seeing a shift in sentiment essentially uh, towards defense as a sector. And the question that arises is, well, is this a, a sector that should be considered sustainable? Now, from our perspective, um, every investor will ask this question. It will answer the question of, you know, whose national security matters differently and from their own perspective, which implies that it's unlikely that there will be a consensus uh, as an answer to this topic. So in our view, as we think about kind of taxonomies of social or environmental issues, um, we think that they should be broadly based on international norms, international principles, you know, for example, the UN Sustainable Development Goals or the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And taking this broad view means that um, these types of principles would be hard to systematically justify that in every single case, broadly investing in defense would be aligned with a social sustainability taxonomy. Now, as I say that, there is nuance to this view, and every investor will have to answer this question based on their own preferences, as well as there will emerge regional differences in how sustainability-focused investors are responding to this question. For those that will view national security as a social sustainability element, one thing that we again think will be very important is a doubling down on the question of governance. And this is because if you look at areas like weapons manufacturing, for example, it becomes very important for investors to understand if whether those manufacturers, you know, what's happening with, with those weapons and if they are going to towards intended consequences or if there's a risk of unintended, unintended consequences. Um, and, and this will be evaluated largely through the lens of governance. So this, these are just some of the questions that have floated over the last month, and, and we surely will see more of this debate unfold. Yes, indeed, it does remain quite fluid, though. Thank you for sharing those considerations. Uh, Susan, to bring you into the conversation, a couple of questions. What are some of the issues in the emerging markets that have been highlighted 
for you by the Russian invasion into Ukraine, uh, now the Russia-Ukraine war. And as an emerging markets-focused portfolio manager, how do you evaluate social or governance risks in times of crises, but also before a crisis escalates? Thank you, Dan, so much for hosting. Um, the way we think about the emerging Russian crisis is three key risk areas. Political risk, sovereign risk, and governance risk. Governance risk. So the political risk has pretty much always been there in Russia. Uh, these companies from a bottoms-up basis did have very good operational profitability, very low cost curves, and ideal capital allocation policies, but there was political risk that could never really be mitigated due to the ever-present Putin risk. And so we find that political risk usually cannot be mitigated by stock selection. What is now emerging clearly is sovereign risk, which is a whole new level of political risk. And sovereign risk is when the cross-asset of, of a country is really under stress. Um, you know, when fixed income obligations are not being paid, there's significant currency volatility, the central bank reserves are frozen. We are clearly at a stage of sovereign risk, which is a, a, a very elevated level of political risk. Where we really like to focus on as an emerging market bottoms up stock selector is governance risk. And this is something that stock selection and stock analysis can really capitalize on. It's a very critical tool in emerging market equities. One of our interesting observations is how much time an investor really needs to spend on governance. Um, we usually spend more than 50% of our ESG analysis on governance-specific work. And we find that this drives alpha creation. It is profitable and a sound policy to look at corporate governance. Corporate governance has three main questions that we always ask ourselves when we look at stocks. Ownership. Who owns this company? Is this company government or privately held? In our experience, private companies have better control of their destiny. State-owned enterprises are usually impacted by policy changes, administration changes, subsidy changes, taxation changes. It's a full panoply of changes that can impact the minority shareholder. The second governance question is management. Who runs this company? Very often, the management team of state-owned enterprises are appointed by the government. This can result in frequent management turnover at the CEO or executive board level or management quality issues. So we want to focus on management teams that can make long-term strategy decisions and they can deliver business strategy that capitalizes on growth opportunities. And finally, a governance question that's just as critical as ownership and management is capital. Where, where is the money in this company going? Is it being reinvested in CapEx in a reasonable way? Is the company returning money to shareholders? in a transparent and clear way. More color about operating costs, management compensation, disclosure, transparency, understanding the history of capital usage, 
potential linkages to corruption or controversies in a company's capital management history? These are all very important questions any emerging market stock investor really needs to know. Well, thank you, Susan, for a look into your evaluation process. So, Amatia, despite the recent focus on fossil fuel shortages stemming from geopolitical conflicts, uh, we do see a growing sentiment from investors reinforcing our view that investors see the value in the longer-term energy transition and the shift to renewable power generation. What does this mean for investment opportunities across all forms of energy? And so this is slightly shifting gears, but also very much part, part and parcel to this conversation that we're having currently. Um, on this question, we discussed in the beginning of this year, just in January, looking at our uh, 2022 kind of sustainable investing perspective, the fact that in our view, decarbonization as a global process is starting to hit companies' bottom line. Um, we noted back in, in January that the commodity supply crunch and the rising prices that we're observing then should be encouraging companies to manage their energy efficiently uh, and broadly was supportive of this longer-term broad shift and commitment to renewable uh, sources of energy. Now, this question and these dynamics, if anything, they have just amplified um, in what we've seen in the last two months and in the context of this crisis. So broadly, what we would say is we're seeing um, continued investment opportunities, in particular over the long term, around these themes or sectors broadly that are aligned with the theme of clean air and carbon reduction or the themes that are aligned with, with a view on the future of Earth. So specifically, um, investors should be looking at opportunities that are related to areas of renewables, but also moving beyond that and thinking about energy efficiency and smart mobility and carbon ca- capture technology. So over the longer term, we think the current situation is amplifying this thesis and the need to move um, to, to diminish reliance on fossil fuels. Now, over the shorter term, of course, uh, it, it would be unrealistic for us to divest entirely from fossil fuels and so um, we know it's kind of uh, the, the benefit of having this, this wraparound investment view around all sources of energy, but in particular for, for investors that are focused on sustainability to look for those um, issuers that are ESG leaders, or in other words, the ones that are better than their peers in managing um, their own transition away from, from dirtier sources of energy towards cleaner sources of energy within even the energy sector. Um, in order to both meet these objectives of near-term ensuring price stability and having enough um, energy sources to meet our, our global demand, as well as to start moving and then being um, kind of towards the net zero transition at as quick of a pace as is possible. Thank you, Amathia. So, Susan, as geopolitical tensions mount, I know in particular we've been focusing on Eastern Europe uh, today, though, how do you manage this volatility in an emerging markets portfolio, and what are some of the areas you're watching currently? Most emerging market managers are really focusing on economies that will be more resilient to any external shocks. Uh, one of the key metrics that's interesting is that emerging market inflation over the last year has actually been significantly lower than developed market inflation. So when we look to inflation numbers that were coming out of North Asian economies last year, they were in the range of 2 to 3%. We continue to think that an important area to watch 
or the fundamentals of emerging markets is inflation that's not linked, not just linked to energy, but it's also linked to food. Uh, food inflation is a very large component of CPI in emerging markets, and that's different than what most uh, developed markets investors might see in their own CPI basket. For example, when we take emerging market economies, like in India or a Philippines, food is nearly 40% of CPI. When you combine that with retail fuel, need for gasoline, um, any transportation costs, it often means that the food and oil as a total percentage of CPI will be 55 to 60%. And so what we're focusing on from a fundamental kind of angle is looking at this kind of first stage move in agricultural prices inputs, we really want to watch the potential implications of supply of food in these key markets. Um, historically, some important food imports have been, inputs have been wheat, soy, corn. Uh, you know, generally speaking, we think that emerging markets, you know, have more room for accommodative policy responses as we have seen recently in China. Um, and so we, we hope that inflation can be, uh, well, well controlled in the emerging markets in 2022. Thank you, Susan. So, Amatia, if we pivot a bit, I know within the Sustainable Investing Perspectives piece, you also write about the latest UN climate report, which was published back on February 28th. It was interesting. 270 scientists collectively collaborated to note with a very high confidence that global temperatures reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius would cause unavoidable increases in climate hazards in the next three decades. That's quite eye-opening. How should investors think about this conclusion, Amantia, and how is it different from other IPCC reports? Thanks, Ben. So, yeah, I mean, this report um, would have normally, I think, likely gotten a lot of media attention, but but that uh, it, it was obfuscated as we were thinking about the near-term crisis that we're facing instead of the longer-term uh, crisis that the report was pointing to. I'd say um, you're highlighting in your question kind of the, the, the hardest and part of the report, which is the challenges and, um, and climate hazards that the scientists expect us to experience in the next three decades. But there's something else that was part of the report that gives us some scope for optimism still. So while they did conclude, as you noted, that, that we're, we expect this increase in climate hazards in the next three decades, um, a, a bunch of the focus of this report was also doing a very thorough uh, vulnerability analysis of the areas uh, of the world that have highest vulnerability to these climate change risks. And somewhat unsurprisingly, really, they, they found that regions with higher poverty or regions with violent conflict areas uh, or those that have um, local or national governments that have a relatively lower capacity in terms of resources to respond to climate hazards would be more vulnerable to, to these risks. Now, that's not the good news part. The good news, however, is that in their view, it seems that there still is a window of opportunity that remains open for us to invest in creating um, not just climate mitigation uh, type initiatives, and, and mitigation means working to reduce global emissions, so, so to hopefully reverse or, or at least slow the speed of, of this 
global change, but also kind of adaptation investments. So these are investments that would imply a management of the climate risks moving forward. And, and they look like, you know, looking at things like infrastructure updates uh, for critical areas like hospitals, for example, or schools and making sure that they are uh, resilient. Um, kind of now as, as we look forward and project forward in the next 30 years for uh, what could come potentially. Uh, it means investing in things like building design and flood protection and disaster management. And some of this would come as government investment and building government capacity, but some of this is also an opportunity and an area of interest for private capital and for, for private investors to come in and, and both support or as um, be part of this opportunity set now at the early stage. So I'd say, um, you know, in some ways, this report, which is the second in a three-part series that is coming out of the United Nations uh, IPCC um, over the course of this cycle of the reviews of climate change, um, is different from the prior one in that it didn't focus on the climate science behind climate change. In fact, it, it moved a step beyond. It focused on um, expected and anticipated and projected impact as well as vulnerability. And I guess it was similar also in that it, it's ringing this alarm bell about the climate risks, but the, the scientists still see this window of opportunity for these investments on mitigation and adaptation, which really should serve as a call to action. And if anything, as we're experiencing what was discussed so far, right, the, the global implications around food prices, to Susan's point earlier, around energy prices and how they ripple across economies, um, this should serve as an important reminder for us that um, if, we, if we look at climate change down the line, 30 years down the line, um, and we think of those also being similar risks, then, then it really highlights the importance of, of investing currently uh, in the near term in these mitigation or adaptation strategies. Thank you, Amatia. So building on this a bit further, Susan, another key point of the IPCC report was that regions of the world with lower income or lower government capacity to respond to climate impact are most vulnerable and therefore need to focus on adaptation. Susan, how do risk and opportunities related to climate change come up in the way you think about investment drivers? And how do you think about topics like corporate impact on and exposure to ecosystems or human communities? I'd like to use two different uh, topic areas about um, kind of decarbonization. Um, one is about the role that um, countries like China can play in improving, obviously, their very, very large greenhouse gas footprint. So everyone knows that China is um, dominated by coal usage. Nearly 60% of their energy is powered through coal. And the country is definitely making policy changes um, to reduce carbon emissions on, on a country-wide level. What's interesting that's happening in China is that China is now the largest global market for electric vehicles. Nearly 68% of all EVs sold globally were sold in China in December. And when we look at EV penetration rates, they are the highest in the world. Um, they're around 19%, which is enormous for such a large country and a large population. And what's also very interesting about China's EV evolution is that it dominates 
some of the largest global supply chains when it comes to EVs. In fact, the largest battery manufacturer in the world is Chinese. And when we think about some of the most important components that go into EV batteries, they control often 75 to 80% of these supply chains. And so, you know, I think that's a story that's not well telegraphed sometimes. Um, another topic that is also not well telegraphed in emerging markets is the importance of water and how water scarcity can impact local communities. And this water scarcity is not just an issue for, you know, more emerging market economies, but it's also an issue, for example, for companies like TSMC in Taiwan. So let's talk a little bit about how water is used in the semiconductor fabrication process. You need ultra-pure water. You cannot use desalinated water. The water intensity for the semiconductor foundry business is 75% higher than all other GIX sub-industries. Taiwan is a market, though, that is population-dense. There are a lot of competing demands for water usage, and water is sometimes in shortage. And when you look at TSMC, nearly one-third of the water consumption in the major science parks in Taiwan are by TSMC. But here's where it's positive. Taiwan and its companies are one of the most aggressive recyclers of water globally, with nearly 72% of Taiwan corporates engaging in recycling. The senior management teams of these companies are fully engaged in practices of water management and fully on board with um, really watching this from a policy perspective. One interesting example that we've seen recently in a more emerging market economy is the role water can play in mining assets. And so what we recently saw was a very large copper mine in Peru where the local community blocked access to water and blocked access to rail because there is a scarcity of water around this copper project. And so we are seeing real-world examples in our communities and in our investments of water demand, and it ranges across many countries and many sectors. Well, Susan Amanti, it was great catching up with you both today on Sustainable Investing Perspectives. Very much appreciate your insights. Thank you, Dan. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.